following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Well, good morning. My name is Sean Farrell. I serve as the college pastor and also one of the elders here at Faith Bible Church. It's nice to meet you. Uh, If I haven't met you, please come say hi afterward. I'd love to shake your hand and say hello, hear your story. Uh, if, if, If you're newer with us, Chris Mueller, our teaching pastor, is away this morning. He is preaching at a friend's church. His name is Rocky. He's a previous San Diego Charger, and Chris uh, doesn't leave us on Sunday mornings often, but he did this week. Uh, we're taking a one-week one week break, therefore, from the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be working through one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. So if you would, take out your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 12. And I'd like to begin with a story. It was on July the 6th, 1924, that the Olympic Stadium in Paris was packed. People had come from all over the world to witness the 16 days of glory. Much like today, the centerpiece of those Olympic Games was the 100. And on that 90-degree day, the crowds gathered to see the crowning of the world's fastest man. The Scotsman, Eric Liddell, was the favorite. But Liddell wasn't suited up, and he wasn't warming up. He wasn't even in the stadium. He was down the street at the Scots Church of Paris. And on that Sunday morning, Eric Liddell was preaching. You see, Liddell was a devout Christian and his personal convictions, much like the founder of Chick-fil-A, did not allow him to run on Sunday. And so he willingly forfeited his spot in the hundred. Now, contrary to the storyline of the Academy Award-winning movie, The Chariots of Fire, raise your hand if you've seen it. Good, you'd have to be at least 30 or up probably to see that one, even in the past. Dun, 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 dun. Score by uh, John Williams, it's just a phenomenal movie. But uh, contrary to the storyline that that movie laid out, uh, this was not a surprise to him when he showed up, that the race was on Sunday. The schedule for the 100 was published long before the Olympics, and Liddell had opted out, deciding to run the 400 instead. Now, the 400 is a very different race. It's known as, quote, the dreaded long sprint that nobody wants to run, end quote. Unlike the 100, there's a sustained maximum effort that goes beyond the energy reserves of the short-distance runner. Liddell was not world-class in the 400. In fact, he barely made the Olympic team and then barely advanced all the way through to the finals. His times were marginal. But that 400 is one lap around the track, if you're not familiar with it, in which each person, each runner, must stay in their own lane. Because based on the curves of the track, um, they start each runner at a different point. They stagger them at the starting line. The person in the outside lane, therefore, is disadvantaged because they start the farthest forward and they don't really know where they're at until they come around not the first turn, but around the second turn. In that final hundred, everybody evens out and you see where you're at in the race. Liddell drew lane eight, the dreaded outside lane. Add to this that 
The man in lane seven, an American, had earlier that day broken the world record. An hour before the finals, Scottish bagpipers just outside the stadium laid on their pipes, filling the air with the sounds of Scotland in support of Liddell. As he was walking up to the starting blocks, one of his teammates handed him a note that had 1 Samuel 2.30 written on it. Those who honor me, I will honor. The gun went off, and unable to see his rivals, he was left with little option but simply to peg it as fast as he could go for as long as he could go. In describing his form, one newspaper wrote, quote, he is remembered as probably the ugliest runner who ever won an Olympic championship. When he appeared at Paris in 1924, his huge sprawling stride, his head thrown back, and his arms clawing the air moved the Americans and other sophisticated experts to laughter, end quote. When asked about his strategy, Liddell said, I, I run the first 200 as hard as I can. Then for the second 200, with God's help, I run harder. And so at that halfway point, he was three yards ahead of his nearest competitor. The American, the world record holder in lane seven, would later recall, I couldn't believe a man could set such a pace and finish, he said, but Liddell pushed himself like a man possessed. He didn't weaken. The other Rainers would strain every muscle but could not narrow the lead on the Scotsman. And so with head thrown back and, and his chin thrust out in usual style, he broke the tape, finishing six yards ahead of the rest of the competition and again breaking the world record. His story is captured in the book For the Glory, written by Duncan Hamilton. It's a worthwhile read if you have some extra time. But throughout the New Testament, the authors describe the Christian life with different metaphors. In Hebrews 12, they are runners in a race. In Ephesians 6, they are, uh, it, it pictures soldiers putting on armor to fight a battle. In 1 Corinthians 9, they are boxers in a ring. 2 Timothy 2, they are farmers in the field. 1 Peter 2, they are slaves of Christ, and so on. But in the passage before us this morning, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Christians are pictured as living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. Now, to compete as uh, as an athlete in the Olympic Games, as you know, requires total sacrifices. These athletes train their entire lives with a singular focus and a singular goal. Christians are much the same. They live their lives, all that they are, with a singular focus and a singular goal, pouring themselves out as total sacrifices. The goal that they have is to give all that they are to God in an act of worship. Webster defines worship as the expression of adoration for something, the expression of adoration for something. John Piper takes it one step farther and says, worship is treasuring God above all things. Eric Liddell, gold medal world record holder, said worship is complete surrender. What do you treasure most? What do you value above all other things? In the movie Pirates of the Caribbean, theologian Jack Sparrow said, not all treasure is silver and gold, mate. If you remember, he had a compass that pointed toward what the heart wants most. 
What does your heart want most? Career? Family? Success? Money? Sports? A relationship? Simple comforts? Social standing? Physical appearance? Sexual satisfaction? Good health? Every one of us worships God. But some of our gods have little g's. This morning in Romans 12.1, we will find that there is only one object worthy of your worship, and that is Jesus Christ. He alone is to be adored. He alone is to be treasured above all things. And if we were going to sum up this verse and therefore this message in one phrase, here it is. Worship is complete surrender. Worship is complete surrender. So let's read the text together and then we'll dive in. Romans 12.1, it reads, Therefore, therefore, keep that in mind for later, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This morning I'd like to draw four characteristics of worship from this verse and show you that worship is complete surrender. Number one in your outlines, worship involves all that you are. Worship involves all that you are. Now let's start by looking at the phrase, check this out in verse one, look at your Bibles. It says, present your bodies. You see that phrase there? Present your bodies. Now this is a reference to your physical body, but has the idea of putting your whole self and all that you are on the altar, bringing your body before the Lord. The imagery here points back to the Old Testament, back to the Jewish sacrificial system where an animal was taken into the temple, placed on an altar, and sacrificed or offered to God. The animal, the whole animal in its entirety was presented before the Lord. As a Christian, your offering to God is not an animal sacrifice. We don't bring our pets in here with us on Sunday mornings to offer them. We don't pay indulgences. When you give money in the offering, it's not trying to earn favor with God. It's not some other religious effort as an offering. Our offering to God is to give ourselves entirely to him, to give all that you are. Your physical body, your mind, and your will are placed at his feet. We lay every lustful thought, every rebel desire, and all sinful cravings on the altar. In Romans 6.13, just a few chapters earlier, Paul says, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness. We're over here. He's saying, stop it. That was your old way of life. Do not take your body and use this for sinful purposes, to indulge in sinful desires and lusts, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead. There's a transition when you became a Christian, say, that's not my life anymore. I'm gonna present my body to God as those alive from the dead, it says there, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God your body for him. Why? Why is this important? Because your body is his temple. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says, do you not know that your body, your physical body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you have from God and that you are not your own? Did you know that? 
Did you know that God is in you, that Holy Spirit says there is in you? You know the verse in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but finish it, but Christ lives in me. Have you ever thought about that? Christ lives in you. This verse says the Holy Spirit is in you. You are his temple. Verse 20 goes on, you have been bought with a price. That price is the precious blood of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. First Peter 1 says, the blood of Christ. You have been bought with the price, therefore glorify God in your body. God dwells in you, and your body is to be given to, the, to his worship, not to satisfying your own desires. The temple in the Old Testament existed for one purpose. It was for the worship of God. And now your body exists for one purpose. It is the worship of God. He didn't give you a body to use for your own sinful pleasures. You have been given hands and feet and arms and legs to worship him. Oh, some of our bodies are breaking down. They don't work the way they used to. Whether in youth or in old age, in sickness or in health, we are to give our bodies to the Lord Jesus Christ. How are you using your body right now? Would you say that you're using it to to worship God or to worship something else? Let's walk through it real quick. Let's talk about our eyes. Our eyes are amazing. In, In your eyeballs, there are over two million working parts. Isn't that crazy? And we can distinguish 10 million different colors. If the eye were a digital camera, it would be 576 megapixels. And for those of you cool Apple people that are already working the Apple, the iPhone 14, that's a uh, 48 megapixel camera, not even close. (laughs) Are you you worshiping God with your eyes? Or are you like those in 2 Peter 2.14 where it says, they have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Head on a swivel, seeing everything that comes through the door. You're always looking at how your lust can be satisfied through your eyes. What about your visual entertainment, what you watch on TV and in the movies? Do you look at things that demonstrate that you're a worshiper of God or a worshiper of sex? Let's talk about your hands. What websites, what social media outlets, outlets do your hands, does your thumb take you to? What, what or who do they touch that they're not supposed to? Do they pick out clothes that are inappropriate, clothes that are revealing instead of clothes that are concealing? What about your ears? What do your ears listen to? Is it music with explicit lyrics? Is it conversations with others that tear down? Uh, What about your mouth? What comes out of your mouth? Words that encourage and build up or words that tear down? Words that are appropriate, Colossians 4 says, for the need of the moment that they may give grace to those who hear? Or is it words of gossip and slander, four-letter words, taking the Lord's name in vain? The point here, friend, is simple. God gave you the body that you have not to run and enjoy sin, but to be used for his purposes, to serve him, and ultimately to glorify him in worship. The reason that we say no to inappropriate things The reason that we don't look at porn, the reason that we don't eat too much, that we don't excessively drink, that we don't dress immodestly is because we want to honor God with the bodies that he's given to us. That echoes Paul's heart in Philippians chapter 1 verse 20. 
Christ will even now, as always, listen, be exalted in my body. Worship involves all that you are because worship is complete surrender. We could look secondly and say that worship is costly. Worship is costly. Back in that first verse of Romans 12, it says there, to present your bodies, I want you to look at this next word, as a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice. And again, the sacrificial system is in view. And I, I want to give you the picture. The, the head of household would select an animal from his flock. He would travel to Jerusalem. He would come all the way to the temple. He would walk in on that day of worship, that high day of Israel. He would enter the outer court and he would get into, a, at some point, get into a line with other men, with other animals that are doing this same ritualistic, sacrificial act that God had commanded. While waiting, he would be confronted with the reality that the animal that he was holding was a substitute for him, a life for a life. And so he would come to the priest when it was finally his turn at the altar, and the priest would take his hand and he would put it onto the animal itself. And the priest would then take the animal's head and pull it back and take a sharp knife and cut its throat from ear to ear and allow the blood to drain out onto the altar. Priests were butchers. And on the, those high holy days, like the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, once a year, it, 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 there, was, there were channels carved out in the temple where blood-like rivers would flow down and out. The picture, though, don't miss it. Don't miss the picture. The picture is a life for a life. That animal is dead. That's the sacrifice. That's the offering. And the sin of that man and his family is being transferred in that animal, all of our sin is being put on that animal. It's being killed. It was an insufficient picture, but it was a good picture nonetheless, right? That was pointing forward to the sacrifice that one day would come, that perfect sacrifice of Christ, because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away the sin of, an an of a person. But that day that Jesus stepped on the scene in John 1, 29, and John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was a dead animal on that altar. That was God's command. But here in Romans 12, he's not asking for a dead animal anymore. He's asking for you. Alive, not dead. He wants all that you are as a sacrifice. The text there, look at there, verse one, you are to be a living sacrifice. This is an active process in each and every moment, each and every waking moment of the day, in every thought and in every word and in every action that God would be lifted high, that in all of your lives and at all times um, that he would be, um, or excuse me, that you would present your life and your body to him as a pleasing aroma. Because worship is not just singing songs on Sunday. That's a part of worship. But that's not the extent of it. Worship is not just going to your community group on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night. Or some of you really spiritual people that go on Sundays. Worship is not carrying around a big study Bible and walking through the parking lot saying, have a blessed day, and using all the Christian lingo, although that's great. Worship is a lifestyle. It is to live in a way that magnifies Christ in all things. 
It is the outward expression of an inward heart that is on fire for God. It is to live each and every day, Colossians 1 says, as if Christ is first place in everything. To give your body, to give your mind, and to submit all that you are to him. I think we can compare the story with, uh, compare this with a story from World War II. If you've ever heard of the Battle of Iwo Jima, there's a great book called Flags of Our Fathers written about this. It's fascinating. But in the Pacific Theater in World War II, the Allied forces and mostly American Marines are coming across the Pacific trying to get back to Japan. But back in those days, the aircraft carriers didn't exist, and therefore they had to get small islands where they could puddle hop one to the other, refuel, recharge, and go to the next one. Iwo Jima was necessary, so from there they could launch and attack Japan directly. And America wanted this place. Japan knew they needed to defend it. They spent months, the Japanese, digging tunnels and caves, hundreds of miles of network across this eight-mile by two-mile island so that they could be hidden, they could store their supplies, and they could jump out from unsuspecting places to defend their land. For days before American, the American attack, they shelled the island from the air and from the ships that were out there. But even still, during the initial landing, the American forces were cut down uh, by a staunchly devoted and entrenched army who would choose death, <laughs> who would choose death over surrender. For 36 days, American forces would advance slowly, painfully. They would suffer intense loss. On some days, they would move forward only one or two feet. It was one of the hardest fought and bloodiest battles in World War II. These soldiers were young men, ages mostly 18 to 21, who day after day laid their lives down, stepping into harm's way again and again. They would sacrifice themselves, not just once, but over and over again, making the decision to stay in the battle because that's what the commanding officer had said, to keep fighting and to continue on their mission. Eventually, they would prevail and take the island, but at great personal cost. And if you don't know Iwo Jima, you know the picture of the flag coming up and the men carrying it. That's a picture from the top of the mountain there when America, uh, the Allied forces won. But it came at great cost. And I, I think this is a worthwhile comparison of what it means to be a living sacrifice. It is active. It is constant. It is costly. It is a daily, even moment-by-moment -moment decision to deny your flesh, to deny yourself, and to put all that you are on the altar and to live that day, that moment, for the glory of God. Because worship is complete surrender. When God gets all of you at all times, and when the passing pleasures of this world are denied, and inch by inch, and foot by foot, we move forward against the battle with our flesh, Knowing that our commanding officer has told us to stand firm, we still battle and fight. We go backwards and we go forward, but we fight the flesh. I don't know about you, but I struggle here. I struggle here. Do you? I feel like I'm a failure at times. I'm okay with Sunday morning. We're all here this morning. We did it, right? Congratulations. But making him Lord of every area of life is difficult. And the old saying is true. He is Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. 
Is he Lord of your thought life? Is he Lord over your lust? Is he Lord over your fantasies? Over your relationships? Over your anxieties? Over your insecurities? Over your emotions? Is he Lord of your present? Is he Lord of your future? Over the small decisions and the big ones? Over your trials? Over your physical pains? Is he Lord of your broken heart? Is he Lord of your past and your failures and your regrets? Friend, he owns your life, your home life, your friendships, your entire life, your schooling, your career, your relationships. And so there is nothing held back. Jesus gets it all. From every facet of your life, excuse me, every facet of your life, from the time your alarm sounds in the morning until you lay your weary head back on that pillow, he is Lord. And so in Philippians 1.21, Paul says it succinctly, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Worship is complete surrender. It involves all that you are. It is costly. And number three, worship is giving God your best. Worship is giving God your best. Back in our verse in Romans 12, Paul says, present your bodies a living, and I want you to check this next word, and holy sacrifice. The word holy means to be set apart, to be morally clean, to be different from. Back to our picture in the Old Testament, the requirement for an, a sacrifice was that the animal would be without blemish. God didn't want a lame, weak, sick, dying animal. He required them to bring their best. <coughs> Excuse me. And we too are not to come to God with our leftovers. We're not to come to him in some unprepared way. We are to come to a... <coughs> Excuse me. We are not to come to a holy God in an unholy way. In, the, in Psalm chapter 24, verse 4, the psalmist knows this, and he says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who can enter the presence of a holy God? He says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And so we're to come to God with a life that honors him. Friend, you cannot live for this world all week long and then show up ready to worship on Sunday morning. You cannot be entertained by things for which Christ died and then be ready to share your faith after the movie is over. Many years ago, I went on a trip to New York. I took three of my orthopedic surgeon clients, part of my job as a sales guy. Uh, we went on an educational trip, but we had an afternoon off, and it was a Saturday, middle of summer in Manhattan, 100 plus degrees, humidity, we were just dripping as we walked through the city. We agreed, you know what, it's 2 p.m., we're just, we're just disgusting, let's go see a movie, where it's like, you know, 36 degrees and perfect, uh, and so we walked up to the theater, and the movie we bought tickets for was a rated R movie. It was filled with raunchy humor and excessive skin. And instead of saying no and explaining I'm a child of God, I've been set apart to be a holy sacrifice for him. I 
bought a ticket right alongside of them. Instead of walking out when the movie turned for the worst, I stayed in my seat. Instead of at least closing my eyes during those parts, I kept my eyes open the entire time. It was just a few hours later at dinner that it happened. The opportunity that I had prayed for, that I had been waiting for, for years, came at dinner time. We're in the restaurant. One of these men says to me, Sean, you're a Christian. Tell us what that means. It was like this lobbed softball to me, right? And I proceeded to share the gospel with them by telling my testimony. You know, it was when I was in eighth grade that I was listening to preaching much like this. The preacher said, there's a holy God, and each one of us has sinned and broken his law, and we are separated from God, from God by an infinite chasm because of our sin. But it was in the man, Jesus Christ, who is God and man, that he died offering his perfect life. He perfectly kept the law of God, offered that in the place of my life, and God looked at him, pouring out his wrath. He paid for my entire penalty, and God attributed Christ's perfect life to me. And in that moment, I cried out in faith, and God forgave me of my sin, and I was cleansed from all of that, and I had a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And since that day, I've lived for him, saying no to my desires and no to my lusts and living for the Lord. But I don't know if you've experienced this. It felt so hollow. It was so empty of any real power because my life didn't match the message. I had not been a holy sacrifice. I had filled my eyes with filth, and at that point in the evening, I hadn't even had time to sit down and ask for, for forgiveness or, or confess the sin. <clears throat> there was no holiness in me. All I could think about was the words of Jesus in Matthew 15, 7, where he says, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And I felt like Peter who denied Jesus three times. And if you look at Luke 22, it says that in the third denial, you don't have to turn there, but in the third denial, the cock crows, the rooster goes off, and Jesus, it says, looks up, and he and Peter lock eyes. And Peter, it says, went out and wept bitterly. I had that moment of recognizing my sin and my failure. And maybe you have felt this too. You succumbed to your lust and looked at porn this week. You lost your temper with your kids. You fought with your, your spouse. You failed to trust God through the trial that you're in. And so you come this morning to communion. And much like me, we come with the same list of sins. Isn't it always the same list of sins? Isn't it always the same list of sins that you're going back to the throne of grace with, having failed again to be unholy in the same ways? Friend, you're not alone. We've all fallen short. And even now, even today, we are still in our sin. I should say we're still sinners, but we're not under law. Listen, listen, listen. We are under grace. And God accepts us not because of how good we are, but because of how good Jesus is. He doesn't look at you and see your sinful life any longer. You have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your failures. He sees only his perfect son. And so he looks and he says, 
This is my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. And so even on our very lowest days, God's grace and his forgiveness covers all of our sin. It was Corey Ten Boom who said, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And she was talking about a very severe suffering and trial she was in, but I'm pretty sure it applies when we dig the hole ourselves. And we dig ourselves deeper into our sin, and yet God still covers. God still undergirds with grace and covers us with love. Do you remember the story in John chapter 2 when Jesus cleansed the temple? He walked in there, and he saw all this circus going on. The, the leaders had turned the worship of God in the temple of God into a for-profit business. And maybe he grabbed a bunch of leashes or things were tying the animals up, and he stands off in a corner, and he makes a whip out of this. And then in a moment of zealous rage, of righteous anger, he goes through the temple, moving animals, like we said, thousands, flipping temples over, money's flying everywhere, the place empties out, and the disciples remember, John 2.17 says, what it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. If Jesus was that concerned about a temple that was made out of wood and stone, how much more does he care about the holiness of those who are his living temple? He will not stand by, Christian. He will not stop working on you and purifying you and even disciplining you if necessary until Christ is formed in you. That is his work. So what is it for you right now? What aspect of holiness are you lacking in? That impure relationship, it needs to end today because God is holy. That device that is dragging your soul to hell needs to be removed because God is holy. That foul music that is on repeat needs to be deleted from your, your favorites because God is holy. Those revealing outfits, they need to be thrown away today because God is holy. <coughs> Those excuse me, friendships that are pulling you away from God need to be discarded because God is holy. I want to encourage you to invite the Spirit of God to cleanse his temple, to blow through this place so that we can be forgiven and restored and made new. I, we're never going to be perfect. Not on this side of heaven. And we're never going to worship God perfectly, but it is the desire of our hearts to bring him a sacrifice that is fitting for a holy God and to live a holy life, to be set apart so that we can offer him something. I, I just, I get this picture in my mind sometimes when we're taking communion. All I have to offer you, God, all I have to bring are these sin-stained hands. It's the same sin. And I come every time just saying, I just want to give something back. I just want to offer you something, and in my imperfection, God takes and cleanses that because of the righteousness of Christ, and he accepts our worship because we come to a great high priest, and we confess our sin, and 1 John says that he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it is our goal, is it not? According to Romans 12, 1, look at your Bibles, that our sacrifice would be, look at that phrase, acceptable to God. 
to be well-pleasing to God. This is our spiritual service of worship is to give our lives. We want it to be well-pleasing or acceptable to him. To come to him as the one who is worthy to lay down our lives and listen to give him our very best. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.9, therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And so we seek to battle our sin and to give ourselves, all of ourselves, as living and holy sacrifices. Worship is complete surrender. And, and this brings up a really interesting question. The question I have, and maybe you have this too, is the question, why? You're asking me to change everything that's normal and natural for me, to go against everything my heart longs for and desires, and to do this so differently, why? Why selfless sacrifice? Why give up all that we are for him? And that takes us to our fourth point. Worship is motivated by mercy. Worship is motivated by mercy. I want to read the entire verse one more time. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Why do we lay our body on the altar as a living sacrifice? Why do we give him everything? Why do we set ourselves apart in worship? Look at verse one. You can circle and underline this. It is because of the mercies of God. Write in your Bibles. I'm giving you permission. Star it, underline it, highlight it because of God's mercies. Paul is urging his readers. He is entreating them. There's no command in this text. This is the gentle persuasion of a brother in Christ coming to his friends saying, you guys remember, remember it is because of mercy. It is because of mercy. What are the mercies of God? Really quickly, because we don't have time. But in Romans chapter 1, the mercy of God is the the gospel of Jesus Christ given. It is the power of God for salvation. You know what that tells me? I, I can be saved from God's wrath because Jesus died for me. That is the power that God can justify or set apart his wrath onto Christ and make me alive in Christ. In chapter two, it is the kindness of God, it says there, that leads me to repentance. In chapter three, though all have sinned and fall short of his glory, he still justifies or calls those who are guilty sinners and makes them right in his presence because of his grace, chapter three, verse 24. In chapter four, it's because we um, can come to him by faith, not our work, but the work of another, and as long as I trust in him, and believe wholly in him, God counts that to me as righteousness. In chapter five, God demonstrates his love in that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. In chapter seven, it is the fact that I am a wretched man and who will set me free from this body of death, but thanks be to God and my Lord Jesus Christ who did that. In chapter eight, one of the fullest chapters in the entire Bible, it starts and says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. There's mercy I'm no longer under God's judgment. I'm not condemned. But instead, chapter 8 tells me, I've been adopted as a son. I've been set into God's perfect plan by which it doesn't matter. All things will work together for my good. I have been put under his love in which it says that there's nothing that will separate me from the love of God, not height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. I've been sealed in chapters 9, 10, and 11. It lays out the historic plan of God for salvation. 
that God chooses who he will save, that all of humanity was sliding downhill towards destruction, and in the election and the sovereign plan of God, by his grace, he chose some to be his children, plucked them as it were as brands from the fire. This is the mercy of God. And so we come to chapter 12, and we see in verse 1 that word at the very beginning of the sentence, therefore. It sits in the middle of this book, and it's like a hinge that opens a door. Chapters 1 through 11 are all the mercies of God laid out to the Christian, and then the door swings open on therefore, and we now are to live our lives for Jesus Christ because of what he's done and because of his mercies. Therefore, you and I pour our lives out on the altar for the Lord Jesus Christ. All that he's done, his amazing grace, his unstoppable love, his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's as if the the gates of heaven have been opened wide and he's pouring out mercy and blessing upon us, the most of which we see in Christ. The greatest sacrifice, the perfect lamb of God who died not for any wrong he had done but to pay for our sins, to cover our transgressions. Listen, Jesus was laid on the altar as a living sacrifice. He gave his life. Jesus was laid on the altar as a holy sacrifice. He lived perfectly. Jesus was laid on the altar, and it cost him everything. So why do we worship? What is the motivation for worship? It is because in the mercies of God shown to us in the person, the work of Christ, we want to respond It's not that we have to read our Bibles. It's not that we have to be Christians. It's not that I have to look away from those images. It's because God has filled my heart with his mercy and changed me and set me apart that now I can worship him. It's like I'm a a pot that's boiling, 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 and it's just the overflow. That's my life. That's your life. It is not duty. It is not obligation. It is delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we give all that we are and we willingly lay down our ambitions and our desires and our futures and our hopes. We put them all on the altar and we give ourselves wholly to him. Why? Listen, because he gave himself for me. He gave himself for me. And the best I can do is to take these sin-stained hands then and to come and say, Lord, I just want to give you something. I want to give you all that I am. Worship is not me trying to please God by my own efforts. Worship, listen, is my response to what Jesus has done for me. And so my life is lived out of gratitude for what has happened. It is natural for the Christian to abandon self and with full and complete surrender to give ourselves wholly to him. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3.8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. That's worship. Let me wrap this up. Worship is all that you are. Worship is costly. Worship is giving God your best. Worship is motivated by mercy because worship is complete surrender. But not all here today are worshipers. Some have never surrendered their life to Christ. And friend, this is where it begins. When you come to an end of yourself, recognizing that your sin is dragging you to hell, it has separated you from God, you are under his wrath, and that only because of what Jesus has done can you be forgiven from your sin, and you can stand in the presence of a holy God blameless. 
It only happens because of the work of Christ. And so I would encourage you this day to cry out to God to experience his mercies and recognize that Jesus will take away your past and your regret and all of your sin and will give you a new heart and a new life. He'll fill you with his love and give you his peace and and entrust with you the hope of heaven. Today is the day of salvation. Cast down the idol of self and of success and of sinful pleasure and find yourself in Christ. For the rest of us, we have received mercy, Christian, and so we worship. We come to him in gratitude and we lift our hearts, wait, we lift our very lives in adoration and commit ourselves, body, soul, spirit, all, of we, all that we are to him. We confess that we fall short and we come back to the cross. We ask God to forgive us when we fall and we don't sit in our sin. That has been paid for by Jesus. We turn from that and experience the life-giving reign of the grace of God. We are free. Don't go out of here whipping yourself because you haven't lived perfectly. It's never gonna happen. Jesus did it. We walk out of here triumphant as victors because of what Christ has done. And so we worship in our brokenness, and God makes us whole. Just one year after the 1924 Olympics, still at the zenith of his athletic career, barely 20 years old, Eric Liddell hung up his spikes and headed to China as a missionary. When asked if he regretted leaving the fame and glory of athletics behind, he responded, It's natural to think over all that sometimes, but I'm glad I'm at the work I'm engaged in now. A fellow's life counts more for this than for the other. As World War II cranked into gear in 1941, the Japanese invaded China. Out of an abundance of caution, Liddell sent his pregnant wife and his daughters home. There he stayed alongside his brother in a rural village. His brother was a medical doctor, and they offered um, food and supplies and medicine and the gospel of Jesus Christ to those people. Before long, he was imprisoned in a Japanese concentration camp, deprived of his freedoms, without any creature comforts, never to see his family again. In that concentration camp, he poured himself out as a living sacrifice, loving others, serving them, bringing them the good news of Jesus Christ. He would forfeit his own basic needs to help those around him, giving all of himself to the Lord and working tirelessly for the good of others. But over the course of years and months, his health deteriorated. He would tire easily. His headaches grew worse and worse. He became confused and before long was unable to recognize even the people around him. Turns out that he had an inoperable brain tumor. Liddell gave his life for the people of China, pouring himself out until his very last breath. Just five months before the end of the war and the liberation of that concentration camp, as he lay dying, he spoke his final words, it's complete surrender. And with that, he went home to be with the Lord. What a story. What a life. May we pour ourselves out in that same way. Father, we're so grateful that we can draw into your presence because of the finished work of Christ. And even now in this moment, we recognize that we need the grace of our Lord to cover us from our sin. 
Thank you that we can come and confess our sins and you're faithful to forgive us. Thank you that we can draw near your throne because of all that Christ has done. Thank you for your mercies. And even now as we turn toward communion, we recognize our incredible need for you. And so we come with open hands and with open hearts. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.